Chapter Twenty Five of the Professor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Martin Geeson. The Professor by Charlotte Bronte. Chapter Twenty Five. In two months more, Frances had fulfilled the time of mourning for her aunt. One January morning, the first of the New Year holidays, I went in a fiacre, accompanied only by Monsieur van den Houten, to the Rue Notre-Dame-aux-Neiges, and having alighted alone and walked upstairs, I found Frances apparently waiting for me, dressed in a style scarcely appropriate to that cold, bright, frosty day. Never till now had I seen her attired in any other than black or sad-coloured stuff, and there she stood by the window, clad all in white, and white of a most diaphanous texture. Her array was very simple, to be sure, but it looked imposing and festal, because it was so clear, full, and floating. A veil shadowed her head, and hung below her knee. A little wreath of pink flowers fastened it to her thickly tressed Grecian plait, and thence it fell softly on each side of her face. Singular to state, she was or had been crying. When I asked her if she were ready, she said, Yes, monsieur, with something very like a checked sob. And when I took a shawl which lay on the table and folded it round her, not only did tear after tear course unbidden down her cheek, but she shook to my ministration like a reed. I said I was sorry to see her in such low spirits, and requested to be allowed an insight into the origin thereof. She only said, It was impossible to help it, and then voluntarily, though hurriedly putting her hand into mine, accompanied me out of the room, and ran downstairs with a quick, uncertain step, like one who was eager to get some formidable piece of business over. I put her into the fiacre. Monsieur van den Houten received her, and seated her beside himself. We drove all together to the Protestant chapel, went through a certain service in the common prayer-book, and she and I came out married. Monsieur van den Houten had given the bride away. We took no bridal trip, our modesty screened by the peaceful obscurity of our station and the pleasant isolation of our circumstances did not exact that additional precaution we repaired at once to a small house i had taken in the faubourg nearest to that part of the city where the scene of our avocations lay three or four hours after the wedding ceremony Frances, divested of her bridal snow, and attired in a pretty lilac gown of warmer materials, a piquant black silk apron, and a lace collar with some finishing decoration of lilac ribbon, was kneeling on the carpet of a neatly furnished though not spacious parlour, arranging on the shelves of a chiffonniere some books, which I handed to her from the table. It was snowing fast out of doors. The afternoon had turned out wild and cold. The leaden sky seemed full of drifts, and the street was already ankle-deep in the white downfall. Our fire burned bright, our new habitation looked brilliantly clean and fresh. 
the furniture was all arranged and there were but some articles of glass china books etc to put in order francis found in this business occupation till tea-time and then after i had distinctly instructed her how to make a cup of tea in rational english style and after she had got over the dismay occasioned by seeing such an extravagant amount of material put into the pot she administered to me a proper british repast at which there wanted neither candies nor urn firelight nor comfort our week's holiday glided by and we readdressed ourselves to labour both my wife and I began in good earnest with the notion that we were working people, destined to earn our bread by exertion, and that of the most assiduous kind. Our days were thoroughly occupied. We used to part every morning at eight o'clock, and not meet again till five p.m. But into what sweet rest did the turmoil of each busy day decline! Looking down the vista of memory, I see the evenings passed in that little parlour like a long string of rubies circling the dusk brow of the past. Unvaried where there is each cut gem, and like each gem brilliant and burning. A year and a half passed. One morning, it was a fete, and we had the day to ourselves, Frances said to me with a suddenness peculiar to her when she had been thinking long on a subject, and at last having come to a conclusion wished to test its soundness by the touchstone of my judgment. I don't work enough. What now? demanded I, looking up from my coffee, which I had been deliberately stirring, while enjoying in anticipation a walk I proposed to take with Francis that fine summer day, it was June, to a certain farmhouse in the country where we were to dine. What now? And I saw at once, in the serious ardour of her face, a project of vital importance. I am not satisfied, returned she. You are now earning eight thousand francs a year. It was true. My efforts, punctuality, the fame of my pupil's progress, the publicity of my station had so far helped me on. While I am still at my miserable twelve hundred francs. I can do better, and I will. You work as long and as diligently as I do, Francis. Yes, monsieur, but I am not working in the right way, and I am convinced of it. You wish to change. You have a plan for progress in your mind. Go and put on your bonnet, and while we take our walk you shall tell me of it. Yes, monsieur. She went, as docile as a well-trained child. She was a curious mixture of tractability and firmness. I sat thinking about her and wondering what her plan could be when she re-entered. Monsieur, I have given Minnie, our bonne, Leave to go out too, as it is so very fine. So will you be kind enough to lock the door and take the key with you? Kiss me, Mrs. Crimsworth, was my not very apposite reply. But she looked so engaging in her light summer dress and little cottage bonnet, and her manner in speaking to me was then as always so unaffectedly and suavely respectful, that my heart expanded at the sight of her, and a kiss seemed necessary to content its importunity. There, monsieur. Why do you always call me monsieur? Say William. I cannot pronounce your W. Besides, monsieur belongs to you. I like it best. 
Minnie having departed in clean cap and smart shawl, we two set out, leaving the house solitary and silent, silent at least but for the ticking of the clock. We were soon clear of Brussels. The fields received us, and then the lanes, remote from carriage-resounding chaussée. Ere long we came upon a nook, so rural, green and secluded, it might have been a spot in some pastoral English province. A bank of short and mossy grass under a hawthorn offered a seat too tempting to be declined. We took it, and when we had admired and examined some English-looking wild flowers growing at our feet, I recalled Francis's attention and my own to the topic touched on at breakfast. What was her plan? A natural one, the next step to be mounted by us, or at least by her, if she wanted to rise in her profession. She proposed to begin a school. We already had the means for commencing on a careful scale, having lived greatly within our income. We possessed, too, by this time, an extensive and eligible connection, in the sense advantageous to our business. For though our circle of visiting acquaintance continued as limited as ever, we were now widely known in schools and families as teachers. When Frances had developed her plan, she intimated in some closing sentences her hopes for the future. If we only had good health and tolerable success, we might, she was sure, in time realise an independency, and that perhaps before we were too old to enjoy it. Then both she and I would rest, and what was to hinder us from going to live in England? England was still her promised land. I put no obstacle in her way, raised no objection. I knew she was not one who could live quiescent and inactive, or even comparatively inactive. Duties she must have to fulfil, and important duties. Work to do, and exciting, absorbing, profitable work. Strong faculties stirred in her frame, and they demanded full nourishment, free exercise. Mine was not the hand ever to starve or cramp them. No, I delighted in offering them sustenance, and in clearing them wider space for action. You have conceived a plan, Francis, said I, and a good plan. Execute it. You have my free consent, and wherever and whenever my assistance is wanted, ask and you shall have. Francis's eyes thanked me almost with tears. Just a sparkle or two soon brushed away. She possessed herself of my hand, too, and held it for some time very close clasped in both her own. But she said no more than, Thank you, monsieur. We passed a divine day, and came home late, lighted by a full summer moon. Ten years rushed now upon me with dusty, vibrating, unresting wings. Years of bustle, action, unslacked endeavour. Years in which I and my wife, having launched ourselves in the full career of progress, as progress whirls on in European capitals, scarcely knew repose were strangers to amusement, never thought of indulgence, and yet as our course ran side by side, as we marched hand in hand, we neither murmured, repented, nor faltered. Hope indeed cheered us, health kept us up, harmony of thought and deed smoothed many difficulties, 
and finally success bestowed every now and then encouraging reward on diligence our school became one of the most popular in brussels and as by degrees we raised our terms and elevated our system of education our choice of pupils grew more select and at length included the children of the best families in belgium we had too an excellent connection in england first opened by the unsolicited recommendation of mr hunsden who having been over and having abused me for my prosperity in set terms went back and soon after sent a leash of young blankshire heiresses his cousins as he said to be polished off by mrs crimsworth as to this same mrs crimsworth in one sense she was become another woman though in another she remained unchanged so different was she under different circumstances i seemed to possess two wives the faculties of her nature already disclosed when i married her remained fresh and fair but other faculties shot up strong branched out broad and quite altered the external character of the plant firmness activity and enterprise covered with grave foliage poetic feeling and fervour but these flowers were still there preserved pure and dewy under the umbrage of later growth and hardier nature perhaps only i in the world knew the secret of their existence but to me they were ever ready to yield an exquisite fragrance and present a beauty as chaste as radiant in the daytime my house and establishment were conducted by madame the directress a stately and elegant woman bearing much anxious thought on her large brow much calculated dignity in her serious mien immediately after breakfast i used to part with this lady i went to my college she to her schoolroom returning for an hour in the course of the day i found her always in class intently occupied silence industry observance attending on her presence when not actually teaching she was overlooking and guiding by eye and gesture she then appeared vigilant and solicitous when communicating instruction her aspect was more animated she seemed to feel a certain enjoyment in the occupation the language in which she addressed her pupils though simple and unpretending was never trite or dry she did not speak from routine formulas she made her own phrases as she went on and very nervous and impressive phrases they frequently were often when elucidating favourite points of history or geography she would wax genuinely eloquent in her earnestness her pupils or at least the elder and more intelligent amongst them recognised well the language of a superior mind they felt too and some of them received the impression of elevated sentiments there was little fondling between mistress and girls but some of frances's pupils in time learned to love her sincerely and all of them beheld her with respect her general demeanour towards them was serious sometimes benignant when they pleased her with their progress and attention always scrupulously refined and considerate in cases where reproof or punishment was called for she was usually forbearing enough but if any took advantage of that forbearance which sometimes happened a sharp sudden and lightning-like severity taught the culprit the extent of the mistake committed sometimes a gleam of tenderness softened her eyes and manner 
but this was rare only when a pupil was sick or when it pined after home or in the case of some little motherless child or of one much poorer than its companions whose scanty wardrobe and mean appointments brought on it the contempt of the jewelled young countesses and silk-clad misses over such feeble fledglings the directress spread a wing of kindliest protection it was to their bedside she came at night to tuck them warmly in it was after them she looked in winter to see that they always had a comfortable seat by the stove it was they who by turns were summoned to the salon to receive some little dole of cake or fruit to sit on a footstool at the fireside to enjoy home comforts and almost home liberty for an evening together to be spoken to gently and softly comforted encouraged cherished and when bedtime came dismissed with a kiss of true tenderness as to julia and georgiana g daughters of an english baronet as to mademoiselle mathilde de heiress of a belgian count and sundry other children of patrician race the directress was careful of them as of the others anxious for their progress as for that of the rest but it never seemed to enter her head to distinguish them by a mark of preference one girl of noble blood she loved dearly a young irish baroness lady catherine but it was for her enthusiastic heart and clever head for her generosity and her genius the title and rank went for nothing my afternoons were spent also in college with the exception of an hour that my wife daily exacted of me for her establishment and with which she would not dispense she said that i must spend that time amongst her pupils to learn their characters to be au courant with everything that was passing in the house to become interested in what interested her to be able to give her my opinion on knotty points when she required it and this she did constantly never allowing my interest in the pupils to fall asleep and never making any change of importance without my cognizance and consent she delighted to sit by me when i gave my lessons lessons in literature her hands folded on her knee the most fixedly attentive of any present she rarely addressed me in class when she did it was with an air of marked deference it was her pleasure her joy to make me still the master in all things at six o'clock p m my daily labours ceased i then came home for my home was my heaven ever at that hour as i entered our private sitting-room the lady directress vanished from before my eyes and francis henri my own little lace-mender was magically restored to my arms much disappointed she would have been if her master had not been as constant to the tryst as herself and if his truthful kiss had not been prompt to answer her soft bonsoir monsieur talk french to me she would and many a punishment she has had for her wilfulness i fear the choice of chastisement must have been injudicious for instead of correcting the fault it seemed to encourage its renewal our evenings were our own that recreation was necessary to refresh our strength for the discharge of our duties sometimes we spent them all in conversation and my young genevese now that she was thoroughly accustomed to her english professor now that she loved him too absolutely to fear him much 
reposed in him a confidence so unlimited that topics of conversation could no more be wanting with him than subjects for communion with her own heart. In those moments, happy as a bird with its mate, she would show me what she had of vivacity, of mirth, of originality in her well-dowered nature. She would show, too, some stores of raillery, of malice, and would vex, tease, pique me sometimes about what she called my bizarrerie anglaise, my caprice insulaire, with a wild and witty wickedness that made a perfect white demon of her while it lasted. This was rare, however, and the elfish freak was always short, sometimes when driven a little hard in the war of words, for her tongue did ample justice to the pith, the point, the delicacy of her native French, in which language she always attacked me, I used to turn upon her with my old decision, and arrest bodily the sprite that teased me. Vain idea! No sooner had I grasped hand or arm than the elf was gone. The provocative smile quenched in the expressive brown eyes, and a ray of gentle homage shone under the lids in its place. I had seized a mere vexing fairy, and found a submissive and supplicating little mortal woman in my arms. Then I made her get a book and read English to me for an hour by way of penance. I frequently dosed her with Wordsworth in this way, and Wordsworth steadied her soon. She had a difficulty in comprehending his deep, serene, and sober mind. His language, too, was not facile to her. She had to ask questions, to sue for explanations, to be like a child and a novice, and to acknowledge me as her senior and director. Her instinct instantly penetrated and possessed the meaning of more ardent and imaginative writers. Byron excited her. Scott she loved. Wordsworth only she puzzled at, wondered over, and hesitated to pronounce an opinion upon. But whether she read to me or talked with me, whether she teased me in French or entreated me in English, whether she jested with wit or inquired with deference, narrated with interest or listened with attention, whether she smiled at me or on me, always at nine o'clock I was left abandoned. She would extricate herself from my arms, quit my side, take her lamp and be gone. Her mission was upstairs. I have followed her sometimes and watched her. First she opened the door of the dortoir, the pupil's chamber. Noiselessly she glided up the long room between the two rows of white beds, surveyed all the sleepers. If any were wakeful, especially if any were sad, spoke to them and soothed them. Stood some minutes to ascertain that all was safe and tranquil, trimmed the watch-light which burned in the apartment all night, then withdrew, closing the door behind her without sound. Thence she glided to our own chamber. It had a little cabinet within, this she sought. There too appeared a bed, but one, and that a very small one. Her face, the night I have followed and observed her, changed as she approached this tiny couch. From grave it warmed to earnest. She shaded with one hand the lamp she held in the other. She bent above the pillow, and hung over a child asleep. Its slumber, that evening at least, and usually, I believe, was sound and calm. No tear wet its dark eyelashes, no fever heated its round cheek. 
no ill dream discomposed its budding features. Frances gazed, she did not smile, and yet the deepest delight filled, flushed her face. Feeling pleasurable, powerful, worked in her whole frame, which still was motionless. I saw indeed her heart heave, her lips were a little apart, her breathing grew somewhat hurried. The child smiled. Then at last the mother smiled too, and said in low soliloquy, God bless my little son. She stooped closer over him, breathed the softest of kisses on his brow, covered his minute hand with hers, and at last started up and came away. I regained the parlour before her. Entering it two minutes later, she said quietly as she put down her extinguished lamp, Victor rests well. He smiled in his sleep. He has your smile, monsieur. The said Victor was, of course, her own boy, born in the third year of our marriage. His Christian name had been given him in honour of Monsieur Vandenhuten, who continued always our trusty and well-beloved friend. Frances was then a good and dear wife to me, because I was to her a good, just and faithful husband. What she would have been had she married a harsh, envious, careless man, a profligate, a prodigal, a drunkard, or a tyrant, is another question, and one which I once propounded to her. Her answer, given after some reflection, was, I should have tried to endure the evil or cure it for a while, and when I found it intolerable and incurable, I should have left my torturer suddenly and silently. And if law or might had forced you back again? What, to a drunkard, a profligate, a selfish spendthrift, an unjust fool? Yes, I would have gone back, again assured myself whether or not his vice and my misery were capable of remedy, and if not, have left him again. And if again forced to return and compelled to abide? I don't know, she said hastily. Why do you ask me, monsieur? I would have an answer, because I saw a strange kind of spirit in her eye, whose voice I determined to waken. Monsieur, if a wife's nature loathes that of the man she is wedded to, marriage must be slavery. Against slavery all right thinkers revolt, and though torture be the price of resistance, torture must be dared. Though the only road to freedom lie through the gates of death, those gates must be passed, for freedom is indispensable. Then, monsieur, I would resist as far as my strength permitted. When that strength failed, I should be sure of a refuge. Death would certainly screen me both from bad laws and their consequences. Voluntary death, Francis. End of chapter 25 Part 1 Recording by Martin Giessen in Hazelmere, Surrey